Welcome to Ag Matters, a podcast where we talk about both matters of agriculture and why agriculture matters. Here's your host, Dr. Amanda Stone, Mississippi State University Assistant Professor and Extension Dairy Specialist. This is Dr. Amanda Stone, Mississippi State University Extension Specialist. Today we will be um, having two visitors actually talking about um, farmer stress and mental health. So please introduce yourselves. Thank you, Dr. Stone. My name is Mary Nelson Robertson and I work on Mississippi State University Extension Services Promise Initiative, preventing opioid misuse in the Southeast. And I'm excited to share a little bit more with you about what we're doing in regards to farm stress. Yeah, and I'm David Baez. I'm a state health specialist for Extension. I work on the Promise Initiative with Mary Nelson and, and along with several other projects on campus. Perfect. So we're happy to have you. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what the Promise Initiative is and the history behind it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it'd be helpful to, to tell you a little bit about how we got to where we are. Um, dial back about three years, the USDA amended a, a funding opportunity they've offered for many years to extension called the Rural Health and Safety Education um, Mechanism. And they they ask that states applying for that focus on opioid-related issues. And so we um, took heart and put an application in and thought we would do some work around social marketing and kind of a, a big picture messaging and education in rural communities um, around opioid misuse. And if we got as we got the funding and we got funding and got into it, we realized that we really needed to tailor our focus. Uh, that while we would continue to work in rural communities, we saw a, a, an emerging need among agricultural producers. And Mary Nelson can talk a little bit about the stress that we know that ag producers are under and why we're why we've taken this tack. Yes. So farmers, um, when I read the statistic that three out of four farmers were directly impacted by opioid misuse, I knew along with Dr. Baez that we had to do something about this issue. And farmers experience a very unique set of stressors. Their crop yields, their debt overloads, their machinery breaking down or their livestock becoming ill, the high interest rates, the commodity prices, as well as the weather. And a lot of these stressors are out of one's control. We can't control the weather or whether or not our livestock become ill or the tariffs that are going on currently. And these stressors just really begin piling up. And Dr. Baez can share with you a little bit more about the hazardous occupation that farming is combined with these stressors. Yeah, so we, we operate really kind of from a conceptual framework that, that because farmers have these factors that are outside of their control that drive their stress um, really high, and they, they, are, they do have a, a, an extraordinarily high risk of occupational hazard. That means, um, I mean, things as simple as slipping off a tractor when you're getting up, you twist your ankle or you cut your hand on a, on a disc or um, exposure to chemicals. I mean, there's a lot of things that go, can go wrong on a farm. And, and so those things may lead a, a producer to the emergency room or to their doctor, and that may lead to uh, an opioid prescription that they get validly uh, because they've got a twisted ankle or they've got a cut hand or whatever the case may be. They start taking the prescription and, and wow, things are better now. Uh, not only is it treating that cut or that bruise or that twisted ankle, it's now things don't don't 
seem so bad anymore. And that could start the cycle of addiction. Mm-hmm. And so we, we recognize that there's this potential, this pattern, potential for this pattern to unfold in, in ag communities. And we want to be a part of helping uh, prevent that from happening. Sure, and that's a very admirable goal to have because it seems to be a problem, like Mary Nelson said. Um, so what types of cycles are you seeing with producers? So if they get the valid prescription, then what starts happening? I would say the main thing that we're seeing is they're getting these valid prescriptions and then they it's treated the physical injury that they've had and then next thing you know it's treating that emotional stress and all of a sudden it's easier to go along with your day not worried about all the debt that is has accumulated or not worried that um, the floods affected you and you weren't able to get your crop in the ground this year and it makes life a little bit easier so to speak and it's masking those stressors it's not really healing those stressors it's just masking them and that makes us more susceptible to disease and addiction mm-hmm. and so then when that prescription eventually will run out right then what happens so they may seek uh, another prescription they may they may show up at the doctor with another problem be it real or, or not um, we and for folks who are really in active addiction they may go to extreme measures um, like seeking it in Ill- illegal ways. They may um, start by asking a neighbor um, for, for something. And anytime you use a prescription outside of what it was um, given for or written for, it's considered misuse. So if I have, uh, even even within an individual, if I'm given the prescription for um, uh, you know, wisdom teeth extraction uh, recovery and six weeks later I pull my back out, changing a, an implement on the tractor, and I take take a, that's take an opioid at that point. That's still that's considered misuse. So it's certainly misuse to share it with someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they may go that route. Um, and that's that's common in communities to send a text message to the family group message and say, Oh, I, I, you know, I hurt my hurt my back. Has anybody got anything that I can have until I get to the doctor on Monday? That that happens uh, more frequently than we would like to think. Um, and then once those outlets have run out, people might might proceed to uh, buying pills on the street, um, buying them through illegal means that way. And then when that outlet runs out, they could turn to heroin, mm-hmm. and and that's uh, you know really problematic. And it's all problematic when you get down to the illicit drugs, and that's uh, mm-hmm. that's scary. It's a scary place to be. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So how common is this in Mississippi? What are you? What statistics are you seeing? I can't really speak in regards to farmers specifically on statistics of opioid misuse in our state, but I can speak to um, our population as a whole. And um, I know that in last year there were enough um, dosage units or pills for every Mississippian man, woman, and child to have 48 pills. We are leading the nation. Uh, We're number three. We're tied for third place with Tennessee for our the highest prescribing rate in the nation. Um, our rate is in the um, 90s, mid-90s per 100 people for prescribing. And um, our overdose rates from, from opioids are steadily increasing in our state as well. And there's a number of reasons for that. There's also increases in opioid misuse. But we also know that in our local rural communities, 
we oftentimes know who the coroner is and we can ask the coroner, hey, please don't report that as an opioid overdose. Just say natural causes or something else. Hmm. And so we really want to encourage people to report the death for what it is so that we can do something about it because when we have that data, we can get extra funding to mm-hmm. do something about it. Sure. And it's a disease. The stigma is really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, we don't, we don't criticize people for uh, having cancer or, or having heart failure. Um, the diseases of addiction is something that a lot of people, and of course there's choice involved, and I don't want to undermine that, but, but it is, we, some people have a predisposition to, to addiction um, in ways that others don't. And the, the same people living next door to each other um, subjected to the same conditions, um, one of them may become addicted and one of them may not because of brain chemistry. And we, we need to have a better understanding of that in, in society and in our community so that we, we can deal with the stigma around mm-hmm. that stigma. Um, around addiction stigma, around treatment, and be willing to talk about that. Nobody criticizes someone for getting chemo if they they have a cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But but we often talk in really hushed tones when we, yes. if we know that there's somebody that's gone to treatment, oh, they checked in the 30 days down mm-hmm. at Pine Grove, or, you know, that's, that's, that's really, that shouldn't be that way. We should commend people for seeking help mm-hmm. when they found themselves in a troubling situation. The debt and the stress that producers are under is just remarkably difficult and it's no wonder that some of them um, end up in, a, in situations like this so we want to we want to deal with the stigma mm-hmm. um, yeah and the stigma is a real thing and before I started working with you all in health promotion and I learned a little bit more about drugs and mental health and, and all of that I I will admit that I used to hold that stigma too because you don't know about it. you hear what other people tell you right and being addicted to drugs or a drug addict, as people call them, um, is not a good thing, right? And it's it's not a great thing, but it's something that happens, and it is a disease. And I I wish we could fight that stigma harder, but it seems like you all are taking steps to try to fight that. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and how all of us can fight the stigma? Yeah, this is a yeah. Thanks for that segue. Uh, mental health first aid is one of our. Uh, leading programs is helping us fight the stigma and um, we're just super grateful that Dr. Jackson, uh, upstairs director of extension, uh, mandated that all of our extension agents be trained in mental health first aid. Mental health first aid is a uh, a curriculum that Mary Nelson likes to say, I'm going to steal your thunder. Uh, (laughs) You like to say uh, helps us be expert noticers. We're not training people to be uh, mental health care professionals, uh, no, you know, no psychiatrist, no budding psychologist, just because you, just because you went through mental health first aid, but it does train you to recognize signs of distress that people may be in. We talk in the, in the training about depression, anxiety, we talk about psychosis, um, eating disorders, substance use disorders, and we talk about suicide a lot. Um, and, and we don't stop with just talking about the, the challenges or the problem, but we, we put people uh, we equip people with a solution, with an action plan that they can use when they when they are facing someone that they may think may, is in distress. We help uh, deal with stigma. We talk about language. You know, we talk about um, talking talking about dying by suicide, not committing suicide. The words we use matters. Mm-hmm. Um, suicide is often the outcome of a of a long struggle that people feel, and they didn't commit a crime by by uh, completing suicide, but it's, mm-hmm. it, the, and the way we describe that in our communities um, can 
is, is important for us to, to think about. Um, Mary Nelson, you want to talk about the action plan? Yes, of course. So the action plan of mental health first aid, it's called ALGE, which is spelled A-L-G-E-E. It's different than how you would think ALGE is spelled. And it teaches individuals how to, um, they like to say the smaller A is approaching and how to actually approach the individual. And then you want to assess for risk of suicide or self-harm. And then you want to listen non-judgmentally throughout the time, giving reassurance and information encourage appropriate professional help, and encourage self-help and other support strategies. And not only does it teach you to be that expert noticer, but it also teaches you how to be that bridge to care and connecting individuals to appropriate professional help. And that's so important is knowing what the resources are available close by so that you can connect someone to the help that they need. I think you're, you hit an important point there. And it, we, we encourage people who come through our training to be aware, to become aware of what uh, what resources are available in their community. And one of the things that I do personally that I, uh, that I like to share as, as an example of what I'd like to think is a best practice is I program in my favorites list in my phone the Suicide Prevention Line, the DMH, Department of Mental Health Helpline. I've got the NAMI, uh, National Association for Mental Illness um, Helpline. All of those are programmed in my favorites list so that if I come across someone um, and been engaging with someone that needs that that information, I, I can do something about it. Now, I'll brief rabbit trail. Another one that is really important for farmers that they may want to program in is the poison control line. Um, not not related to mental health, mm-hmm. but, but certainly uh, handling lots and lots of chemicals. It may be important to have that programmed in as well. And I um, again, I'm, I realize this is a rabbit trail, but I've used okay. that personally in my in my own family with um, my my one year old, now three year old, got into some Tylenol one day that we had put away, but she found a ladder and she knew that it tasted like bubble gum, and mm. she she got into it. Yeah, so that would be scary. <laughs> never know when those lines are going to come come uh-huh. help come in come in handy. Thank, fortunately, I've not had to use the suicide prevention line with any any friends or family or, or people I've come across but I never know when I will, and I know exactly where that number is stored. Uh-huh. Sure. When well, I've shared this with you all before and other people about my experience with not using <laughs> that hotline when I, I, I wish I would have, and um, someone approached me about wanting to die by suicide, and it was a, a long, long conversations, months of conversations ab- about this, and it was very difficult for me to process and to handle, and now looking back on it however many years ago, it was, I don't even remember, if I had this training, the mental health first aid before that had happened, I would have known what to do. And luckily, thankfully, that person did not end up going through with it, but it could have ended a lot differently. So mental health first aid is a very good, very Mm -hmm. good training. Um, And so can we cycle back to that? And can I ask you, can anybody do that? Like, can the listeners sign up for mental health first aid or what's the process? Absolutely. So they can go on the, on our website. We've got a, a webpage through extension. In fact, if you just go to the extension webpage, extension.msstate.edu, again, extension.msstate.edu, you can just search on Promise Initiative or you can search on mental health first aid and it'll take them to a place where they can uh, complete a form or it'll get Mary Nelson. Email. You want to tell them your phone number, Mary Nelson? Oh yeah. My telephone number is 662 662- Three two five four 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 seven. Three two five four 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 seven. And you can also email me as well, Mary Nelson Robertson, um, MNR seventy two at MS State 
mississippi.edu. So we've got a cadre of folks trained um, in Mississippi to provide this training. We've got, I think, 17 uh, agents, uh, individuals trained to provide adult mental health first aid, um, and we're spread all over the state. So we've got the state. We could we can really go anywhere in the state and provide this, um, and would really would really enjoy, enjoy doing that. We've got a range of of pe- people with excuse me. We have people with a range of backgrounds trained. So we've got a lot of ag-related folks um, that can that can get out and provide the training. If we're talking to ag communities, we've got. Um, yeah, just a range of different kinds of folks mm-hmm. that can get out and do this. We also have trainers in youth mental health first aid. And so youth mental health first aid, uh, don't be fooled by the name of it. It's not for youth. It's for adults who work with youth. So we've, and this has been really a lot of fun. We've been able to train a lot of 4-H volunteers across the state who work with our youth. We have 60,000 4-Hers in Mississippi and uh, training our volunteers who work with those youth to recognize signs of mm-hmm. distress in youth and those who may be considering harming themselves or, or suicide has uh, been really impactful for mm-hmm. them, and they, we've got great reviews. Well, and a lot of times it's the younger people, right, where the signs start showing up. I think mm-hmm. We learned that in mental health first aid, right, is that a lot of them were looking at 11 years as the, the median age of onset or 13 or 16, and so learning about that age group is scary as a, a parent thinking right. that your your child could be going through something at that young of an age, but it's important to, to catch it. It's very important. And it really teaches you, because typical adolescent development mimics um, some of the signs and symptoms of mental health disorders, and so it teaches you how to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. Which is important. Okay, so we're going to stop right here, but make sure you tune into part two of the segment on Ag Matters with Dr. David Fies and Mary Nelson Robertson to hear more on farmer mental health and um, opioid misuse and addiction. Thank you for joining us on Ag Matters. Be sure to like and subscribe and tune in next time. Ag Matters is produced and supported by the Mississippi State University Extension Service.